I love Roland. I love Roland's uh, sensitivity to uh, doing what God might want to be doing in a service. And um, just confession, when Roland said, "What? What are your popcorn reasons?" I was like, "Caramel." Like, <laughs> what? I, I I am thankful for popcorn, and I would just say that's one of my reasons. So, <clears throat> but I don't know if that was okay to say, and clearly it wasn't. So. Sometimes the captivity we know feels safer than the freedom we don't. Sometimes the captivity we know feels safer than the freedom we don't. One of my wife's favorite movies is Shawshank Redemption. It's a story of Andy, who's a young, successful banker who has been wrongly imprisoned for murdering his wife and finds himself sentenced to life at Shawshank Prison. While he's there, he becomes friends with Red, played by Morgan Freeman. Red has spent his prime wasting away in prison because of a reckless act of violence he committed as a teenager. Now, after 40 years of incarceration, Red gets his release. Can you imagine? However, once he gets out, he finds that he can't free himself from the habit of asking permission every time he needs to use the restroom. He has become institutionalized. This new life scares him because he's grown accustomed to structure behind bars. And and actually, imprisonment became safe for Red. He didn't have to make decisions. He didn't have to make choices. Someone else did all the thinking for him. And now, on the outside, he faces a prospect more daunting and terrifying than any prison cell. Freedom. Freedom. And so he actually begins to contemplate ways that he could violate his parole so that they'd send him back to where he was safe. Sometimes the captivity we know feels safer than the freedom we don't. And we find ourselves at times longing to go back to things that we thought were safe, that we thought were comfortable, that we thought were familiar, that we thought helped us. Even though they didn't, we still find ourselves going back to them. We turn to numbing agents like food, sex, or the bottle. We can fall back into patterns of things that we feel like we can control, like work or exercise. How many times has someone gone back to a toxic relationship And you go, why are you there? And you realize because for as bad as it is, it gave some level of safety or familiarity. And we've looked out from our bars and we've wondered, what would it be like to live free, to live without shame, to live forgiven, to, to live in this true self that God created us to be? And then one day, God makes it possible. Through faith in his promise, we find deliverance. But we soon discover that while it's one thing to be set free, it's another to live free. I've been thinking about this a lot in my own life. I I know that for me, living free means exemplifying God's love to redeem all things. Like I feel I was put on this planet and that when I'm really living in in this right way with God and really walking and pistons are firing, that what I can bring to the table is not a lot of things, but what I can bring to the table is to demonstrate, hey, God's love can redeem all things. I love that. But there are many times I fall back into the fear that that's not going to happen for me. Or maybe it's going to happen to everybody else, but not me. Well, I'll be lost, I'll be separated, I'll be fragmented. So I find myself often going back to captive ways of living. 
And for me, those captive waves seem to center a lot around lies I tell myself. Lies like, well, no one really cares what you think. Your opinions and feelings don't matter. You know, just stuff those down and make sure that everybody around you is happy. And then you'll find the love that you're really looking for. It doesn't work. I try to broker situations so that everyone around me is at peace. Inside, though, I'm feeling overlooked and angry. This is a captive way of living. Why do I go back to those? Because sometimes the captivity we know feels safer than the freedom that we don't. And this is where I think we find the people of God right after the exodus, right after they crossed over this sea and, and the, the sea is closed up and Pharaoh's armies are gone and they're like, yay, we're free. Now what? They've never been outside before. They'd had 400 and so years of captivity in Egypt. They were told when they could worship, when they couldn't worship, who you can marry, who you can't marry, where you will work, where you will not work, what you will do, where you will go, all this stuff. They didn't have to make any decisions, and now they're on their own going, well, I, what do we do? Being a captive is all they've ever known. And yet this one day, through faith in God's promise, they've been set free. But how are they going to stay free? That's the question. Especially is, as time goes on, they're going to forget what it was like. And as time goes on, it's going, to, it's going to be able to look back and go, yeah, you know, was Egypt really that bad? They had good food. It was beautiful there. I mean, yeah, there's all the oppression and stuff, but really, I mean, we were safe. You know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of needs. I mean, maybe it, was, maybe it would be okay just to go back to that. And this is going to be the dominating story for the rest of the book of Exodus. Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of Great Britain, once referenced what he called the counterintuitive phenomena of Jewish history. Here's what he says. When it was hard to be a Jew, people stayed Jewish. When it was easy to be a Jew, people stopped being Jewish. Globally, this is the major Jewish problem of our time. I would say that if you were to take some time and just read through the entire history of the Jewish people in the Old Testament, you would go, it's the major problem of all time, right? When the pressure's on, we, we turn to God, and, and when that pressure's off, we start to kind of drift away. And in fact, I would just like to borrow from Mr. Sachs and say, globally, this is the major Christ-following problem of our time, at least for me. It's easy when times are tough to, to get back and, and, and pull back in faith, and it's easy in times to get fine to focus on other stuff. So if you were God, and you had just freed all these people, these million people, out of this slavery in Egypt, and now they're facing this prospect of looking forward into a life, and how, you're, how will you keep them free? This is the problem God has with us. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to follow uh, these people around. We're going to find some different ways that God is going to give to them and help them so they can continue to live free. And of course, this is kind of a metaphor for us as, as we have come to faith in Christ. If you have come to faith in Christ and you're saying, but I, I want to keep moving forward with Christ. I don't want to fall back to some old things. Great. These same things that God gave to them are going to be things that God can give to us too. So this morning, I want to encourage you to turn to Exodus chapter 12. Genesis, next book, Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to see one of the first things God is going to give to people who've just been set free is actually a look back. 
Verse 37, towards the end of the chapter. Here we go. The Israelites journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, not even counting the women and children, so probably east of a million, million and a half, something like that. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. I underlined this one part just because I thought this is something that is telling to us. Uh, the many other people were not Hebrews. They were not Israelites. They were not necessarily people that followed this God. They were, pe they were Egyptians. They were Egyptians who had just watched all their gods, all their Pharaoh, all their things that they believed in get crushed by this other God. And there's a lot of people saying, you know, I thought that Pharaoh reigned. I thought that Ra reigned. I thought that uh, Canus reigned. And it seems that really Yahweh reigns. You know what? I don't know if I believe in this God or not, but he's a lot more powerful than our God, so sign us up. We're going with you. Can you imagine? It's not just captives leaving, but what if the prison guards said, we're going to go with you because we believe there's something about your God. It's a good reminder to us that God's offer of freedom has never been for a few people. That Israel was always intended to be a conduit for the freedom of God, and we are the same. We're a conduit for the love of God. We keep reading, verse 40. Now at the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of those years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. And then here comes this practice that gets started. Because the Lord kept vigil, that, because the Lord watched over that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. What's talking about here is the practice of Passover. Passover is a meal, it's part of a, a ceremony that's held every single year by Jewish people to commemorate this event, the Exodus, the greatest event in their history, the night of God's deliverance. Passover always begins as it does in a Jewish day. Jewish days actually begin when the sun goes down. The sun goes down, Passover's begun. The next morning when the sun would come up, uh, the, the, the attitude was supposed to be on the alert for what God might do. In fact, many Jewish people would actually open the front door to their house first thing in the morning, and as the sun comes up and starts shining, they're standing there. And you walk, walk by and say, what are you doing? I'm on the alert. I'm looking for what God's going to do next. It was that kind of thought that because what God did in the past, he can do it again, and we're looking for him. That's Passover. So what I want you to see here is that the very first tool that God gives to people who've been set free is a practice, a meal. In other words, he gives them the discipline of remembrance. And what I want us to walk away this morning with is understanding what the discipline of remembrance is and how God might want to use it in our lives. You see, by taking time every year to look back and remember how they were set free, it helps them look forward and stay free. Now, this discipline of remembering is not necessarily just a, a biblical thought. It's, it's actually something that I, I think all of us practice. I think we've all come to a place where we realize, you know, if I forget something, it's like I've lost it. It's gone. How many of you are the photographer for your family? Just raise your hands right there. Okay. Okay. Keep them up and just smile for a couple minutes and just wait. Okay, just, no, keep them up. Just wait. I just want to get something real quick. 
How many of you, okay, vote around. How many of you uh, live with the photographer of the family? Okay, that's, that's a tension point too. I finally have told my children uh, last year, I said, look, look, let me just solve this for you. Just keep your mouth shut and smile. The longer that you gripe about this photo session, it's going to go on and on. Just smile and let's get it done. Why do we do this? Why do we take these photos? It's because these photos mark a moment. They mark an event. It's like we're saying, hey, something big is happening in our life, and I don't want to forget this, so let's get a photo of it. If you were to pull out my phone and ask what my background wallpaper is, it's this right here. I know. Uh, the left-hand side of the picture was taken uh, two weeks ago. Uh, the right side of the picture was taken about 60 years ago. So that was 20 years ago in Ada, Oklahoma. That's, uh, I, I have that on there because it's a, it's a reminder. Every time I open up my phone, I remember a day. I remember an exodus. I remember a day of rescue. I remember a day of commitment. I remember a day of love. And it actually helps me to, to re revisit those moments and feelings because it changes some of the ways I'm going to act going forward. It's a trigger. We all have things that we have put into our lives to trigger memories. It might be a memento from uh, a vacation you had or a photo that you put on your wall. And these are stories and people come over and they stop and they go, oh, where'd you guys go? Oh, how was that? Tell me the story. And we go, well, I'll tell the story. Because we tend to forget things, we have had to come up with other ways to help us remember. We want to remember those who fought and served in our military for us. And so we set up a day called Veterans Day. We want to make sure we take time each year to review what we're thankful for. So we set up Thanksgiving. We build monuments to where blood was spilled or where peace was fought for. We visit gravesides to allow ourselves the necessary pain of grieving. It's interesting, so as I'm talking about some of this stuff, you might be thinking, but there are some things I don't want to remember. And I realized this summer uh, that I had been spending way too many years of my life trying to not remember some things that needed to be remembered. And they were hurtful and painful. And how do I invite God into that part? It's not just remembering the high points. We name our kids after people that we want to remember. We leave notes and light candles at the sites of tragedy because we want to say something about remembering that. We asked some of you this week online, we said, hey, what are tools you use to remember things God has said or done? Cammie Bremer posted this. She said, I grew up singing, this is the day. Do you, you know that song? How's it go? Yeah, that one. I like it. We don't have to sing the whole thing. I just want to see if you guys knew it. She goes, we used to sing that in the round with my sisters and my mom on the way to school each morning. So when I was taking Struther, their kid, the first day of preschool, I didn't know what to do or say. So I taught him that song, and now it's our ritual for the drive to school. I just love that. I mean, first of all, as parents, how many times that you're like, I'm never going to do what my parents said, but I have no other options, so because I said so. But what, what's happening is here's a moment where she's going, I don't know what to do in this moment. This future is uncharted for me. But what I'm going to do is reach back to something I remember and bring it up. And here it is. Nate Huntley is a friend of mine. He has a, a ton of tattoos that help him remember. He told me, he said, each one of these tattoos has a scripture and a story behind it. My memory, he said, particularly when it comes to Bible verse recall, is terrible. 
However, when it comes to art and images that I simply need to look in the mirror or glance down to see in moments of desperation, failure, and even celebration, and it's easy for me then to remember God's words. The other night, I was, uh, Justin and I were honored to be at the celebration for Exodus Road, where they were celebrating the 1,000th person that had been rescued from sex trafficking through the Exodus Road. 1,000 people. And then they pulled a surprise on us. They said, hey, we've saved the names of the last 50, most recent 50 people that have been rescued, and they're upstairs, and by each one of these names is a rock. And what you can do is you can take out a Sharpie, and you can take that person's name and write it on the rock, and you can keep that rock with you. And so I did that. This is Challen. Her name means Shining Moon. She was rescued from a brothel in August of 2018. But before this, she was in true captivity. And yet, through the efforts of Exodus Road, and I'll just throw this back to you, the, the, the support of this church and that ministry, she is now free. And I keep this rock in my office for two reasons. Because, one, it reminds me that in the past, God delivered her. And it also reminds me in the future that we got some more delivering to do. See, the past helps me live right in the future. Now, this discipline of remembering, I, I would throw out, like I said, it's probably something prevalent in every culture in the world, but we didn't come up with it. God did. When you look in the Old Testament, there's a word, remember, that appears 269 times. God is constantly training his people, remember this, remember this, build some stones to remember this, have this festival so you can remember, take this walk to remember, tell your son this story to remember. Why? We live free when we remember how we got free. In fact, I, I, I'd contend that you could argue that the reason for all our sin and struggle and failure in this planet is boiled down to Adam and Eve not remembering what they were told that God had said and done. And that's why here in Exodus 12, it is a good God who gives his people the very first thing upon them finding Exodus and release a practice that's going to help them remember the Exodus. Now, if you were to read on here in this chapter in Exodus, it kind of starts getting into some really uh, uh, details about how to do this. Remember, these people, this was a new practice for them. God had a lot of rules to help them make sure they learned how to do it right. But just to step back and describe the Passover meal, the Passover meal is a meal that they would sit and each part of the meal told the story. So it wasn't like, okay, be quiet, I'll read the story. No, the food itself told the story. The bread told the story of the bread that's all they had to eat as slaves. The bitter herbs that, that they would eat would remind them of the bitterness of what it felt like to be a slave. They would take this stewed fruit and they'd stir it into this consistency where it kind of looked like clay. And it would tell the story of the bricks that they were forced to make every day. There was roasted lamb that was there that stood for the Passover lamb that they were told to sacrifice, which provided their deliverance. And they had four cups of wine that they would drink throughout the meal at different moments. And each one of those cups of wine stood for a specific promise that God said, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And so you drink that cup and you talk about that promise. So every year people would eat this meal and retell the story of a God who split the seas. 
Now, I have to think that, that there had to be some Jewish kid who would take a bite of those bitter herbs and go, ah, I hate this. Why do we have to eat this every year? Did you know that God actually anticipated that question? Because in Exodus 13, he says, well, on that day, tell your son. <laughs> this is what you tell him. I do this because of what the Lord did for me. That's a good phrase. Say that with me. I do this because of what the Lord did for me. He goes and says, when I came out of Egypt, this observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For if the Lord, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. <clears throat> so it's, it's funny. Um, we always want to make sure we're doing things right with God. I mean, I want to get it right. And there's some people that get really fired up about um, getting into some details and things. And so there, there was a group of really strict Jewish people who would take this same verse and they would go, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're actually going to write out the story of Exodus onto these pieces of paper and ball them up and put them inside a little box and then tie the box around our forehead and tie the box around our hand. And then when we walked around, we were literally walking around with a sign on our forehand and a, a reminder on our hands. And you know, there might be something that could be hollow about that. Just like there could be something hollow about pilgrimages or holy places. Some of you may have grown up in more of liturgical environments and there, you felt maybe there was a hollowness to that. Feasts and holidays, Lent and Advent. But they don't have to be empty religious rituals. They just might be powerful gifts of God to serve as a discipline to remember. So let me pause for a second. I, I want you to answer this in your heart. How do you practice the discipline of remembering? What's a time in your life where you felt like God did something or set you free and that's something that's important for you not to forget? For some of you, the fact that you are here every Sunday morning, it's kind of an ongoing practice for you to, to kind of continue to remember. For some of you, it might be a practice you do at home where you pray before a meal or before a kid goes to bed. Maybe you hang something in your house or there's something you do. Maybe you get up in the morning and you open your door and you just look for a minute. Your neighbor says, what are you doing? I'm just seeing if God's going to do anything today. How do you practice the discipline of remembering. Now, this most powerful practice of discipline called Passover that God gave his people way back then is still with us today. Did you know that? It just has a twist. You see, the night before Jesus died for us, he was celebrating Passover, the same meal, same lamb, same herb, same roasted stuff, same uh, stewed fruit, same wine, but then he did something kind of shocking. He holds up the bread, which would have been representing the bread that they ate in Egypt. And he breaks it and he said, now this is my body. And then he holds up a cup. And according to the Passover meal order, this would have been one to the third cup. The third cup was always connected to the promise that God had made to the Israelites, I will redeem you. Jesus holds up the cup of promise that says, I will redeem you. And he says, now this cup is me. The bread now is a body that's going to be broken. The cup now is a cup of a new promise. 
now God is going to redeem people through Jesus Christ. What Moses wanted to do and could not, Jesus wants to and will. He will lead us to freedom. Such a shocking moment here. It's kind of like if it was at Christmas Eve services and we were singing joy to the Lord, uh, joy to the world, the Lord has come. And I ran up here and I was like, hey, 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 let's change the words. Uh, Joy to the Lord, uh, joy to the world, Thomas has come. Come on, everybody, let's sing. And and this whole night's about me. And you guys would go, no, that's horrible. Why'd you make it all about you? But here's the thing. If I died the next day and then rose three days later, then you have to make the song about me. That's how it works. So what he's doing here is uh, you're changing thousands of years of history saying the bread is me, the cup is me. Here's what he's saying in shorthand. Christ is our Passover. He is our exodus. And he invited us every time we come to this table to remember that he set us free and he will help us live free. Whenever we come to the table, we take the cup, we take the bread, We remember they stand for something new now. They stand for his death, and they stand for our hope that he's coming back again. In a moment, we're going to come to his table to practice the discipline of remembering. But uh, before we do, I just want to encourage you to pause for a moment and really remember. What is it God wants you to remember this morning? Does he want you to remember something he's done for you? Does he want you to remember the story of how you came to faith? Does he want you to remember something that Jesus has said or done that has always stuck with you? Does he want you to remember that he is coming back to reign and redeem all things? What is it that you are personally needing to remember as you receive the table, receive the table? For some of you, this might be a chance to come to the table for the first time in your life. This morning, you might choose to believe that Jesus is your exodus. You come to the table and you take this bread and cup and you go, okay, I believe, Jesus, you are my exodus. For some of you, you may have been away from this table for a long time. Maybe in a sense, you're here this morning feeling like you've already gone back to Egypt and you're, you're back living in some captive ways and you're back trapped in some stuff and you, you kind of wonder, is it? Was it a one-way trip? Is there space at the table? The table is still for you. Exodus is a journey, not an ending. Now, maybe before we come to the table today, there might be something that you want to get off your chest, something you might want to say to God, something you might want to ask Him. Maybe you want to tell Him something or confess. I just want to point out on your left over here, my right, is a prayer wall where you can take a piece of paper and write on there something that you want to pray about or express to God, and then you roll it up and put it right in there. We're going to give you space this morning if you want to go there before you come to one of these tables. At Pulpit Rock, we, we don't have everybody take communion exactly at the same time. You just come and take elements, and when you and the group you are with are ready, you take them. This morning, we're going to give you a phrase to practice while you say, take communion. I would encourage you to take the elements and then we're put up on the screen here to look at one another and just say this. I do this because of what the Lord did for me. And then we all say together, Jesus is my exodus. We we don't say that all together when we do that, but I'm just saying that's what we're saying. So this morning, we welcome you to the table. All of you are welcome here. 
And all of you is welcome here. Come to his table.